0: To the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news. To help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time. So listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing. So best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome to episode 32 of the Tango Juliet Fox Shop podcast. So this week I'm going to be speaking to Mike Neville. So Mike Neville, for those who have never heard of him, uh, is a fairly recently retired Detective Chief Inspector from the Met Police. Uh, Mike and I have known each other a long time, albeit it's been a while since we had spoken, uh, many, many years since we'd spoken, I think, probably. Um, so I knew Mike when he and I were PCs together in South London back in the early 90s. Uh, he um, was the permanent beat officer for uh, an area of South London in Clapham where we both worked, which was known as Two Beat. So for those who don't know anything about policing, um, each geographical area um, was, and I don't know, probably still is, um, broken up into individual beats, uh, geographical locations. And I'm trying to think back in Clapham in those days, I think we had about 11 or 12 beats for the um borough Uh, and mike was responsible for two beat and two beat was the front line in the heroin and crack dealing sort of um it was the heart of drug dealing in that part of london and it was just for those who are interested uh, if you know that part of london it's sort of a triangular area um, at its uh, southern part was right outside Stockwell Tube Station um, and then there was a triangle bounded by uh, South Lambeth Road uh, Clapham Road uh, which was main arterial routes into London and um, and Fentiman Road so it was a triangle um, and, and I took over from uh, Mike uh, after he left to go off and do other things and it was a really interesting time because I had been on a response team in Clapham and um, and then I went later on I went back on to a response team again um, but I, I did a little bit of time I, th- I think I did about 12 months as the permanent beat officer for 2Beat so taking over from Mike was uh, stepping into very very big shoes because he, he had a fairly fearsome reputation in uh, that part of London. Uh, very uncompromising character. Absolutely fantastic thief-taker. Um, knew absolutely everyone. Uh, all of the, had an encyclopedic knowledge of all the local criminals. Um, but he had a brilliant um, relationship with, with all the decent people. And um, uh, particularly the young young kids. Uh, and he was, was and still is heavily involved in the army cadets and uh, most of the most of his cadets were um, uh, living l- locally and he would kind of recruit them when he was out and about to to come and work as as uh, as as uh, army cadets so so mike mike um it was really lovely to catch up with them and he's been a very outspoken sort of character uh i think he was certainly uh very outspoken on our on our chat um i think he you know he has a ability to He's got a phenomenal work ethic. Um, I think he gets very frustrated when other people don't live up to his very high standards. Um, and I think because of that, he probably, being quite outspoken, I think he probably made himself quite a few enemies uh, from time to time. But but I've got a lot of time from, um, and it's interesting that uh, we had Kevin Hurley on uh, on an earlier uh, interview. And uh, Kevin Hurley is also a, a very a formidable character, very outspoken and, uh, and Mike and Kevin used to work together, so God only knows what that must have been like. It's just worth pointing out that the sound uh, and parts of this isn't absolutely brilliant. Um, I think Mike, I, I, t- I joked with him that he was sat in the middle of a motorway service station or something. There's lots of clinking of cups and uh, clearing of plates. I think he was sat in a uh, breakfast room or something of a hotel um, so I apologise for that. Uh, there's not much I can really do about that, but uh, uh, yeah, it's fine. You'll be able to hear everything, but it's just not not um, not exactly Dolby Dolby Stereo. But just before we go into the interview or the chat, um, just a massive, massive plea. For anybody, if anybody's read my book *Tango, Juliet, Foxtrot* and has enjoyed it, and I know lots of people have because they tell me they have, uh, I get lots of really nice emails and messages, um, and uh, and I know from speaking to the publishers that that many thousands of copies have been sold, uh, so that's brilliant, really brilliant news. But can you do us a massive favour and review it on Amazon? You don't have to have bought it on Amazon, but unfortunately, Amazon I think is a, pretty much the only platform that you can do book reviews um, it, I don't think it's had a single review for a good few weeks now which is a bit odd actually I'm starting to get a bit suspicious whether, I don't want to sound all paranoid but um, I'm just wondering is there's some skullduggery going on with Amazon or, or something because um, the number of reviews don't seem to be stacking up against the number of book sales so if you have read it and you've enjoyed it can you please go onto Amazon and give it a review um, ideally with some commentary as well and the reason it's important is because people buy books on the basis of seeing positive reviews and the messages that I'm trying to get out in the book I think are so important for the British public and for politicians and policymakers and journalists and all of these people that um, the more positive reviews the book has the more likely people are to buy it. The more people buy it the more they will educate themselves about what's gone wrong in British policing and hopefully as a result of that something uh, will change for the better. So please don't make me beg but can you get on Amazon and review it? Thanks very much. I'll shut up about reviews now. Right, we'll get into the uh, interview with Mike. (laughs) Hey, Mr. Neville, can you hear me?
1: Yes, I can. can you hey, hear me? there he is. It's all in, uh, it's, there's no need to dress up. You've done the audio aren't you? is that right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Oh, well, travel, well, I'm in the well, travel lodge. No. Well, I was expecting you to be wearing some clothes, though, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> just... <laughs> looking, looking good. A few grey hairs there. A few yeah, more, too
1: many grey hairs. A few more I'll grey hairs
0: else. than the last time I uh, I saw you yeah yeah <laughs> i'm trying to think on that one i'm trying to think when the last time i saw you actually was it was flipping know it was few... do- donkeys years ago wasn't it, it, it literally yeah, yeah it, it's,
1: it must be the. <laughs> it must be the 90s or something
0: oh mate so yeah probably clapham days wasn't it yeah. so um but yeah thanks ever so much for coming on i really appreciate it it's um nice to uh have two old clapham muckers
1: yeah yeah
0: um <laughs> Sorry, I'm using the word muckers there as if I'm some sort of um mockney cockney on time.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, how are you keeping it all right? Yeah, I've been married too many times and had several children, but um, you know, I'm all right. Good. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't
0: killed you. Killer cure,
1: yeah. Everybody
0: well in the, in the Neville family?
1: Yeah, I mean, I lost both my parents. Uh, that was a bit of a wake-up call for me and my brother, because we we're both about 74, so we know we've got about 20 years left. Um, but um uh, yeah, I mean, I'm to, it's just been funny running the business, you know, that's an a sh- unusual experience after, you know, I was a soldier at 16 and then in the police till you're 50, so your money goes in the bank whether you're, you know, idle or good, you know, and I was, I was pretty good at my jobs, but, you know, when you're running a business, one month you've made 10 grand, the next month you make 10 so it's, um, yeah, it's yeah. Going. yeah, I know, so
0: I've been I mean, look, I got
1: a grant off the council for 20 grand to advertise, so, hence that police insight stuff and the like, so, um all right, good. but it is frustrating. It is frustrating with the police trying to get them to change, you know. You got got we've got some wonderful kits uh, that would solve so many crimes, you know, just simple stuff by putting all the CCTV, all the shops in one place and then just comparing all the clothing and faces, you know. Are, just... you,
0: are you by any chance sat in the middle of the super sausage um motorway service station?
1: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually in the uh, lodge, so it's much the
0: same way. <laughs> I was going to say, no, I, I, well, is,
1: is there is there lots of clink, like people like? Oh, yeah, there will be for a minute, but I think that all right. die, that's going to die off, mate.
0: All right. Okay. That's all right. Not so. That's, that's going to die. Not yeah, to worry. They've done what they're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nice one. Yeah. Yeah. No. So um, so let me think. What, as discussed um, by sort of text and what have you, um, or by LinkedIn, what would be good would be to have a little bit of a chat about um, you and your policing. History. And uh and then we can talk a little bit about um where you think it's gone wrong. Mm. Um I really okay. welcome your thoughts on that. And uh and then we can talk a bit about your life in the private sector, you know, we'll talk about super recognizers and CCTV and all of that kind of stuff. So so just for full disclosure for anybody who's uh listening to this, um, well, hopefully a few people will be listening to it. Um So you and I met back in about, let me think, would have been about 1992, something like that, maybe 91, 92, when I went to Clapham, Um, and uh, you were the sheriff of Two Beat, (laughs) and Two Beat was, as you know very well, uh, the Dorset Road estate and the surrounding area around sort of Stockwell Road and... It had a pretty fearsome reputation in those days, didn't it? As a as a kind of the, the front line for drug dealing—heroin, crack, cocaine—and um, you ruled two beat with a rod of iron. Would that
1: be a fair description of it? Yeah, to a point. I did. I was ruthless. I had a whole uh, wall dedicated to graffiti um, lambasting me. But I also ran the local army cadet. So, and I was, you know, well respected in the local pub and stuff. So, when I was attacked by a group of drug dealers, a lot of Irish uh, builders came out and uh, sorted out the drug dealers. So, I had a good relationship with the people there. But I was ruthless with the heroin uh, dealers. Uh, that uh, plagued the place, and of course, it was a very mixed bag because uh, that triangle of roads—South Lambeth Road, South uh, uh, South Lambeth, Clapham Road, South Lambeth Road, and Fenton Road—if you look in there, you've got some of the richest people and some of the poorest. Because yeah. in Albert Square, which was at the back of the Dorset Road Estate, you had John Lumley and a judge and a colonel living. So you had such a mixed bag of people. It was um, yeah, 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 yeah. quite quite a good place to police. Yeah, yeah. So I
0: remember you were you were a, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure you were exactly the same as you went through your career, uh, a pretty uncompromising character, but but fantastic. You know, sorry, I'm starting as if I'm blowing smoke up your arse here, but um, yeah, a fantastic thief taker. And um, you were in the charge room, as it was called in those days, uh, custody. It's called a custody suite now, isn't it? Which yeah, always makes much nicer, I think. Which always makes me laugh. But in those days it was called a charger. Yeah. You're in the charge room on a pretty much daily basis with uh some do well or other. But as you say, I what I what I was always very impressed with um was the fact that you had such a brilliant relationship with the local people and a brilliant relationship with a lot of the kids, you know. Yeah. And um yeah, and and I remember coming to your um, your TA or your cadet place was Campbell was in Campbell wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, I remember coming along there one one day when you were sort of working with the cadets, and most of these kids were off the Dorset Road estate, weren't they?
1: Yeah, they were. That you know, I, I always say that you know I ran the cadets there, Campbellwell, and then in uh, before that it was at Kennington before it was rebuilt. So I recruited in throughout Brixton and Peckham really, and. He- you know centred on the dorset road estate so uh, i always say when when rodney from only fools and horses tells delhi was in the army cadets he he would have been in my unit so that this is the sort of area but what was good about it of course is it i put i did real community relations what you hear from senior officers is that they do community relations and that means they're meeting some uh, racist you know some activist who claims that everybody's racist and they just see one genre of people they never see. The, the normal folk and, and, and the normal kids. Uh, I remember one episode with the cadets just after the Stephen Lawrence uh, inquiry and the institutional racism. And uh, this young black lad said to me, What, what about, about the police, sir? And I thought he's going to come out with something about this. And he said, Oh, no, I'd like to join. And so I just I got the real picture, and I just too too many of the senior officers who've gone through now, they didn't do real community relations. They did anything that got them promoted. Yeah. Uh, they met people who that who just represented themselves rather than the community. They never really did what they did. Yeah. And if, you know, for example, the other thing with the police, I think, is. At that time, I lived in Streatham, so I didn't live far away. If you look at uh, inner London, somewhere like Brixton, 50 years ago, the vast majority of officers would have lived five miles from that police station. They were part of the community; they own, they had a, a stake in it, you know. And I had a stake because I lived in Streatham, and I and I had worked with those local youngsters. I was seen as a, you know, somebody local, and uh, you you want to do well. Too too often now, the police are like an army of occupation. They come in from some nice area into a rough area. Yeah. And they don't have that that same ownership. They go away, and it's not theirs anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the, for me, one of the big, um single biggest impact of. We well, can come on and talk about that in a bit. But um single biggest impact of all of the uh, destruction of the police service under Theresa May was the dismantling of neighbourhood policing. Because I think that was the kind of dueling the crown really and certainly i can only speak because by the time i really understood what because i'd been away in special branch for a long time on surveillance Mm -hmm. teams and away from sort of mainstream policing for quite a long time so really by the time i came back to understand what neighborhood policing was all about it was kind of in the early 2000s when i went up to the west midlands and i was a sergeant um up in coventry and and uh our neighborhood teams were flipping brilliant absolutely absolutely brilliant i mean They they were just such a flexible way of dealing with a multitude of issues, you know, whether that was somebody who just needed locating and locking up or whether it was someone who just needed a bit of a leg up in life, you know what I mean? And sort of pointing in the right direction. So. So, yeah, a a lot of there's a lot of nonsense talked about by 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 senior officers, I think, who have never really
1: done that, frankly, you know what I mean? But, but uh, I remember Ian, if I, I mean one of the points I remember in the Clapham County having a row with a chief superintendent who claimed that the, the public didn't trust one officer more than another. And I said, that's just ridiculous. You know, they know who you are. If they know that you met you remember the great Barry Critchley who was on the six mm. beat, you know, for about 25 years. If they if they know who you are, they'll trust you. And, and I would be said, you can arrest me, but he can't. You know, so and yeah. and because and, they know that you've got ownership, you'll be back on that estate the following day dealing with it. So, yeah, the, the, the senior officers has often they've spent too much time focusing on getting promoted, rather than focusing on being a police officer.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so just some funny memories for me of those days uh, working with you in Clapham. um I remember going to you introduced me to Doctor Tony. So, Doctor. So, describe describe Doctor Tony, because um, I come, but I'm interested in seeing what your background. What's your understanding of who Doctor Tony actually
1: well, was? Well, bizarrely, you, you'll remember uh, WPC there, Saraya, who was uh, she was half uh, Iranian or Persian. And he was—he was, uh, he was uh, in the sort of uh, Iranian community. He was a sort of respected yeah, yeah, yeah. character, like a, some kind of quack doctor. But he had this awful, greasy, <laughs> lank black hair, uh, and a dodgy uh, ice cream van, and the house had an awful smell. Uh, and the bizarreest thing that ever happened to me—I had a, a phone call once, and a message saying, "Ring the deputy commissioner's driver." And I thought, oh "My God, what, what? You know, has he seen me doing something bad?" And the deputy commissioner said, "Look, uh, don't say anything, but..." um the deputy commissioner collects mg's and he wants you to see who owns the mg parked on south lambeth road so i made inquiries and it belonged to to, to dr Tony, this sort of dubious quack doctor so I, I rang the phone number back and it wasn't the drive it was the deputy commissioner speaking i said oh hello sir i said if i was you i'd avoid <laughs> buying that car for all these videos. Thank you very much. On <laughs> the phone but, so, but he was a sort of bizarre individual who lived in a, a very, very big townhouse. And I I think it was right for if they found six dead prostitutes in the back garden. I just certainly <laughs> wouldn't be that they didn't search anything. I know.
0: I remember being introduced to him by you and going into this place, and you're absolutely right. It's, it was a really dreadful smell. It was kind of a weird chemically kind of um okay. smell, and there's all sorts of weird big jars around shelves full of what looked like body parts in swimming <laughs> swimming in various colored fluids and there was weird uh, skeletons that looked as if he bought them out of um secondhand shops and odd sort of uh, posters with various bodily parts on them and he wore this grubby White. It, it was the sort of coat that you would, if you went into a, a fish and chip shop, a really nasty fish and chip shop, the bloke behind the counter would have been wearing a coat just like it. And he, as you see, right, he had filthy fingernails, big long fingernails, as I remember, and this long black, greasy hair, and and he was the oddest character. It was like something out of The League of Gentlemen, wasn't he? Did you ever watch yeah, The League yeah. of Gentlemen? Yeah. But yeah, and apparently he had been in the South London. Um, times quite a few times, hadn't he, for various misdemeanors or things? Yeah. I
1: think. As I say, it was well respected in the, <laughs> by the local Iranian <laughs> community. So god on But I say, it was the WPC who sort of family <laughs> <laughs> took it there when she was a kid. So yeah. It was the
0: fact that he had well, a, a nice. For
1: life.
0: <laughs> the fact that he had an ice cream van. You know that, that in his in his spare time he used to go out in his ice cream van. It's like, oh dear, I'm not sure which I'd yeah. which I'd rather do less: buy an ice cream off him or have him examine me. You know. <laughs> but um yeah, so so where when I when I when I left Clapham to go to Special Branch, um, what what where did you go after that? Did you stay in Clapham for quite a long
1: time? No, I was there for about I think. Uh, let me just work this out. So I got there in '89, so I was probably there for about years, I think. But in that time, if you, I don't if you remember, there's no sergeant's promotion for years in the Met. So I was doing concurrently the dc's course and and the sergeant's exam and i also did that degree at uh portsmouth oh yeah at the same time it was useful because i did a a, a piece on uh, street robbery um mm. of i did two pieces one on street robbery which got me onto operation uh eagle eye uh i was the only pc on it the, the next rank up was a di it was kevin hurley who's you know Oh, yeah. To <laughs> so we, and Bill Griffiths ran that. And I also did a, pe- a piece called Equal Opportunities, uh, Equal Results, which was uh, a dissertation on the arrest rates of male and female officers, uh, which, which showed that um, it was published actually by a feminist academic. But what it showed is that the highest uh, number of arrests were always male officers, the sort of Dirty Harry, Jack Regan, well suppose I could fit into that category, where the policing was not a job, it was a mission. Right. And the laziest officers were invariably men, and all the women were in the middle. So it'd be right. interesting to redo that study. But so, yeah. so I did all those things. Like so, I did the DCS, the sergeants, and this degree. And then a sergeant's post came up at uh, uh, well before that. I, I specialized. My whole work uh, pivoted at that time. So I was two areas: so informants, so people. I became sort of a training DC, uh, crime squad, and the like. And of course because I had such contact with the community, of the six registered juvenile informants in London, I had three of them. Mm. Uh, And it was a time when all the um, banks and post offices took their screens down to be more user-friendly. So almost overnight, the people robbing banks went from being the stereotypical Sweeney villain of middle aged uh, with a stocking mask, a white man to mm. with a shotgun to, to teenage black lads who just simply steamed over the counter yeah. uh, without weapons and, and stole everything. And, um, at this point, um, I realised that we were given we not given CCTV in those days, just given a book of photos. And it was at that point, in around ninety four ninety five, that I realised that the police had no real system to deal with images like they do fingerprints and DNA. This yeah. was a pivotal moment. So, a DI in McDonald said, "You know about uh, local kids, local robberies? Deal with this." And and I was uh, and my first database was one of those. Do you remember those albums you used to get from Woolworths where you you <laughs> opened up the, this like the sleeve and you stuck your photographs in and then you stuck it back down yeah yeah. So that was the first uh, image database <laughs> in the met and i would go around and show these images to to uh, offenders in prison or, or you know informants outside but i, I was finding uh images in dc's desks all over the place then we found out we asked one lad at kennington police station how many of these post office robberies have you done and he said 70 70 and of course at the time the met was divided it's what 50 or 60 divisions yeah, and yeah because yeah. they weren't armed the flying squad weren't picking them up so no one knew of this series so me and a, a dc called dave barnfather set about this i remember uh, actually. Um, no? yeah top top uh, officer me and him uh solved a you know 100, 150 or something of these these robberies you got, very nice you got a commissioner's accommodation but really it set my career path on in two ways firstly to do with informants and secondly with, with images mm-hmm. and so from there I was at this, a sergeant's position came up and I took it and I was a uniform sergeant at, at uh, Southwark uh Burrow and then Walworth it was awful I hated it um Custy Suites it, it tied me down. I'm not an animal mm. to be put in a cage. You know, the idea I couldn't go to fell something. mean, I, I had to have the flying squad intervene with some petty inspector who wouldn't let me go. You know, I had another petty inspector who didn't like me doing the cadets before night. So these are the people who are just shocking, really. Yeah. Uh, luckily, um, about six months into this nightmare... Um, a, uh, a lad called Guy Carmichael came see me at Brixton. He said, "Oh, they're looking for a DS for the Crime Squad," and uh, that, so I went to D- I went to be a DS, and then quickly, um, with it, so I was at so DS at Brixton, and then within eight, uh, within a few months, I said, "We need temporary DIs," so I applied, and, and so I went from PC to temporary <laughs> DI in eighteen months, which was a pretty, you know, that's
0: pretty I, impressive,
1: you know. And then then I uh, so I worked. Uh, all over um, uh, Brixton, then Streatham, uh, Clapham again. So yeah. I, was, I was like the one of the DIs on the bill who actually knows where he is. You know, most people yeah. don't know where they are, do they? <laughs> uh, and, and so I be, then they brought in dedicated informant controllers, uh, and yeah. I became one of those. Uh, and again, I was pushing the use of images all the time.
0: That was as a DI, was it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, as a DI. And then I got promoted to DCI about 15 years service in. So I was a DCI for half my service. So I uh, got to DCI and there was no operational uh, post. And somebody said, Oh, there's this post up at the uh, Operation Emerald, which is about improving justice. And I thought, you know, I keep banging on about these images and this is my opportunity to yeah. do something about it. So I went there and I met a DS called Steve Hubbard who was looking into outcomes of cctv uh with, with a, once a trial and the failings how it wasn't being played and how we losing cases and yeah. i was looking of course at the how do we get more images how do we get them identified yeah. um and so from that we met we went over to see nick fgrave who's of course the assistant commissioner i spoke to him another day top guy yeah who was the detective superintendent of southwark can he Said to me, "Right, you can set up this specialist CCTV unit here." And I was—it was a bit like the Dirty Dozen, you know. I think, I think the only um, one person fit for duty on that team was a, a lad who was twenty-five stone he couldn't walk up the stairs. But you know, <laughs> I got this gang of misfits, and uh, we, we sort of gathering CCTV. And as I started to gather it it started to be identified. And I realized there was a PC called Jamie Smith, and he was making more identifications than anybody else, and there was other officers. And at one point, Southwark was circulating in the Police Gazette more images than the whole Metropolitan Police put together. So I thought there's something into this. So we started to expand. Uh, started to go uh, to other places. Started opening up these units, Brixton, Islington, and I set up the a unit where the images. I remember setting up virtually so that saying we've got to imagine we're not in the same office. The images are coming into this place, and we're going to we're going to circulate them, deal with the identification process. Okay. This was done, and as I say, the we start to get. So why are these certain officers doing this so i fell in with a, a professor josh davis from greenwich he was pretty skeptical i said Look, i've got these officers and he'd been involved in sort of miscarriages of justice so he, he thought i was like uh, trying to pull the wool over his eyes yeah. and we started to do tests and he said oh, i think we're onto something here uh, and at, at the same time the, a professor in uh, harvard richard russell had said, look, he was investigating people called prosopagnosics who are face-blind. You can't see any face. It's something like they're old yeah. in the mirror. And he said, in this bell curve of human activities, the vast majority of people are average. So whether it's playing football, playing chess, doing physics, or, or making eye dance, yeah. 90-odd people are, 90% of people, are average, but on the out, on the outliers, they're either exceptionally good or exceptionally bad. So, if there are prosopagnosics who are face blind, then there must be super recognizers. This was yeah, his yeah. phrase, and this is where this work came from. Um, I had a database. So this like, whole
0: like, this whole notion had never even been considered before.
1: No, but we've always, obviously people listening will think, well, I knew PC blogs who so could identify all these. and we've always had these individuals. Yeah, it yeah. was the systematic use of them that was the the key thing, and the identification of them. So it wasn't just the local skipper who knew they existed. I, I could intervene and say, we've had we've got these very serious this very serious crime in Waltham Forest. We need to show them to these four officers. No, you know this is it was just it was the making of a machine really. Yeah, and so. um what i had there was no cataloging of the images so you couldn't you, you couldn't say you know with fingerprints you can say look we know that look, we don't know who the, the guy is but th- those fingerprints have been in seven different burglary sk- uh, yeah. scenes hmm. that dna we don't know who it is um but that's appeared in six or eight victims. Mm -hmm. So you can start, once the person gets arrested, they get given the the, the hit with seven, eight different crimes. With images, it was just like filed away and not so I needed to catalogue them. And a a friend of mine, we invented a database. and, And of course... The Department of Technology in the Met was an utter disgrace. These people, I shall say now in public, they're scoundrels. Mm. They deliberately uh, tried to stop my work because it justified their own under all sorts of weary reasons. Uh, and then through the, uh, once the riots had happened in 2011, I'd been fighting people, of course I exposed the CCTV, I, I went to a conference and said that uh, the use of CCTV was an utter fiasco uh, of course there's a Guardian reporter in the audience and uh, this this. <laughs> was repeated on the 9 o'clock news in, in the Sydney Morning <laughs> Herald and, uh, and in the uh, New York Times. So people were trying to destroy me, really. Because that's, that's the best thing in the police, isn't it? We, we won't sort out the problem, we'll shoot the messenger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, every attempt, you know, they investigate your personal life, people who've been in this situation i mean i used to get all these people because my unit was internal i'd, I'd be given people who are you know that people hunting for really because it have exposed wickedness or failings. Mm. so we're all sort of uh, sort of the same sort of people um but then after all these attempts the riots occurred
0: mm.
1: and i was away with the army cadets i was brought back so just to say- just to
0: time just to time stamp this what year are we talking 2011. about 2011 so 2011,
1: 2011 by okay. 2011 those i've been at this for four years uh four or five years i wrote in about 2006 i wrote a report called the untapped well of detections if anybody wants it please contact me and it shows how there's massive opportunities to solve more crime by systematic use of uh, cct mm. so for about four years I was at it. they were trying to destroy me uh and then the riots occurred of course the london burns down I was called back in, uh, and, and Commander Foy in, in front of my DS said, I'm sorry, we should have listened to you. Uh, and so, after all this weariness of the Department of Technology and people telling me data protection and all this sort of rubbish, you know, images we already had, uh, the Commissioner told them to put the database on the system. No. You know, that's how it works in the police, isn't it? Dis- yeah, yeah. Disaster. You know, so yeah, yeah. In, in essence, the, the guy who burnt down Croydon helped to improve the use of, of CCTV. Mm. And, and so, By this time, I was at the yard had a specialist unit called the Met Circulation Unit, so all images came into that. Throughout, so the riots had about four, I I was in charge of all the CCTV viewing teams, the 10 of them, and and identification. Again, a senior officer tried to put pressure on me to break the law, to breach Code D, Part B, when it came to... um, uh, it, it came to make an identification so I was dragged in by this command, It's actually he tried to tell me that I should uh, not follow the procedure and I'd misunderstood it, I said well it's, it's funny I've misunderstood the rules because I was actually in the committee that wrote them, you know no. so I, I t- he told him to yeah, oh, I, absolutely t- t- I said you couldn't if, if, you're put, if you're trying to put pressure on me, I, I, another I was attacked by another officer over my uh, utter fiasco, and another uh, DAC he was all red faced and shouting and I, I said can I clarify I'm supposed to be frightened at this point because it's not happening <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know what these people think they're on. This style of management is utterly poor, you know. Mm. And um, But anyway, so the Met Circulation Unit was, uh, received lots of IDENTS. And, you know, one officer, Gary Collins, who's PC at Hackney, he's, he's moved now, he's, he's in some central unit, but what a top officer. The, the We had 4,000 unidentified images. Uh, the magic facial recognition re- machine, which the uh, Department of Technology was telling everybody was the future, uh, managed to do one. Um PC Gary Collins did 180, uh, oh. and so what happened after the riots is that we had all that we had more. We identified 150 super recognisers in the Met, um, which is about right, actually. If you think there's about 45,000 uh, employees, uh, 40,000, you're talking less than one percent have got this. Ability. And how did and how did you rec- how did you identify them, Mike? Two, two ways. So, uh, firstly, we could um, we knew by operational results, you know, who'd made it, like Gary Collins, how many ideas has he made, how many convictions has there been, how successful is this man? That that's one operationally. Secondly, um, I got some EU funding, which I, which I personally, as a Brexiteer, I personally saw it as repatriated money to Britain. <laughs> uh, and to um, to test, and, and with Josh Davis, who was very pro-EU, so we have some, we have some very uh, d- good debates about this, but we did enjoy the, the, the food and wine that the EU provided us on our trips to to do this. And we were the only people who actually did any work, to be honest, but um, it, we, we designed some tests, and we still have the tests these days, and these tests, um, short-term memory, long-term memory, uh, spotting faces in crowds and matching images mm-hmm. uh, and so this was developed so for example when we did the tests uh, we invited everybody in the met to do them uh, number one highest scorer surprise surprise gary collins so we know the operational and the academic results say number two was a, a wpc called uh, alison i don't know forgive me i i can't remember her surname but alison was shocked, and I didn't know I was... And she was on a department, of course, that didn't really need her to use these skills. So wow. you can find super recognizers everywhere. You know, in police forces, they're, they're there. And, and what we did then is we said, right, two things. Firstly, we we um, we realised sending out emails was rubbish uh, because people ignore them. So I had a team of officers, again, who were, you know, the... the, the the sick and lame, not the lazy. So I had mm. these people who had all sorts of, you know, health issues or whatever, yeah, yeah. but wanted to work. So what they would do, we would call them the area identification team. They had several boroughs each. They knew the super recognisers in the borough. They'd go and visit them systematically. So, for example, Idris Bader, uh he's one of the best black super recognizers. And I say that it's because there is some racial bias that so people are usually better at their own race faces. Right. So white people are better at white people if you live in London you get used to different faces so when people say oh Chinese people look the same there is some scientific basis to this and Chinese people have said it to me the other way around in Beijing so I used to recruit super recognisers of every ethnic background but Idris for example he would be visited he's a jailer at uh, Westminster the area ID officer would make an appointment with his sergeant to sit with Idris for an hour he would say right Idris knows about Westminster thieves and burglars he would call them up on the database and you could get 20 IDs off Idris you know all the you know paperwork. so
0: so so basically this is he's basically shown a load of images and it's a case of right please can you tell us whether you recognise, you can put a name to any of these individuals.
1: Absolutely, and it's all done in cold, D, deep uh, Part B uh, compliance. Apps, absolutely, with it, to the extremes where I did a tried at one where that young girl was shot in a shop in Stockwell, We actually videoed the, the procedure with a solicitor present. You know, we showed soup We showed the super recognisers the actual images. So that was very successful. And I've just, a, to-
0: just a question, uh, Mike. Um, if if someone is very good at recognising a face. Um, are they also very good at remembering the name of that
1: person? Some are, but, of course, when you're in a policing situation, you, you make notes so you can refer back, right, I remember this block, where was it? And you've got a notebook or you've got a crime reports to look back on because you've recorded your actions. Right. Even if you can only say, I, I know he comes from Clapham, that's a, if that's a murder case, that's a good starting point, isn't it? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, Because you keep records in policing and security, you can, you can refer back. The other thing that happened, as well as well as that additional thing, so these these hundred and fifty super recognizers like Gary Collins on the Hackney Gang Squad, Idris is in the uh, Westminster Custody Suite. People are all like Jamie Smiths on some transport team. They're all dispersed doing their normal jobs. What was suggested by a guy, Paul Smith? We had all these um, when when the riots happened. I was giving people from everywhere. You know, we had the boat people. You know, the Thames Division, and Paul Smith came from traffic. So the poor lad for ten years was known as the rat because he never left. But he, yeah. Paul did a great job. And, and Paul said, look, um, can we get a team of super recognizers together to work at the Yard? And, and this was a great idea. And this was done. Now, the initial idea was that they would, you know, we had problems at the O2, for example, with Romanian gangs hitting concerts. So they would go spot them before they got in and crush the crime. But, of course, there's not always an event. So what was happening is that they started to review the database and, and start to say, hold on, look, this one is the same as this one. It's the same as this one. So we, we developed this this concept called face snapping, where they would match the same image. You know, to, So the highest one, for example, um, Austin Caballero, was a prolific uh, thief of high-value goods, uh, perfumes, statues, jewellery, clothing from places like Coffin Garden gardens and he mm. was matched 43 times to you know this is the uh, the very first uh, time um a guy called polo ronchi was the first he was uh, he was a so he was a white man so italian uh, uh, uh italian appearance but he always wore a hat and he mm. committed burglary so we could sit, search the database for white men with a hat burglary and he was systematically linked to 14k he was the first one to fall victim to this uh, and then of course caballero was the highest with 43 but it wasn't unusual to max people to 15 20 images say um atm scams uh, burglaries so so Suppose the thing for me, just to, just maybe at the risk of
0: sounding a bit thick here, I just want to clarify yeah. clarify my you know my understanding of this. Presumably, you need you need two things to be present there. You need someone who is a super recognizer, okay, uh, on your team, but you also need that person to be in a post somewhere where they're regularly coming across near do wells. So when you talked about creating a team of super super recognizers sat in some central location somewhere then by definition they're not going to be dealing with 'er ne'er-do-wells out in the street are they
1: so, to clarify, you, it's like a fingerprint expert. To max the finger marks, you don't have to know the name. So, for example, Austin Caballero, the super recognizers didn't know his name. What they could say is that that person is the, that those 43 images of somebody committing theft is the same individual. Right. And then what we did, we did a, a we, we asked in the Met, got nowhere. We put it in the, um, press and a cab driver came forward and said i know that guy he's called austin something or other and so of course search searched the custody database and that all white males called austin revealed you know 100 people and they flicked through and said there he is and he was actually nicked because he made a stupid mistake on new year's eve he got in a cab didn't pay so the cab driver drove him into the police station he was nicked so imagine new year's eve madness Mm. and just before he's going to be released under some false name the skipper said have we taken your fingerprints and he said oh yeah, yeah, yes yeah no we have not so luckily a good old caballero he got the super recognizer team at less than eight on a bank holiday the following day because you know it was scooped <laughs> up but uh but what it shows is that as i say for all police forces i, I, I implore them because it's very frustrating to know that you've got a technique that could solve thousands of crimes it may mm. you know get give victims some satisfaction and make CCTV more effective because once the villains start getting nicked from it, they start fearing. Yeah, yeah. And we're just not using it, you know. You, you know, like in the West Midlands, for example. So th- sorry.
0: sorry. So there's a, there's a question for me. Um, yeah. So I, I know that the Police National Database (PND) has got an image recognition module within it, and certainly I can remember lots of good results that we had from. You know, when i was working in force intelligence of asking asking for images you know had to be reasonably good quality images to be pumped into pnd in order to say have we got a match so is is um, what's your thoughts on the is the quality of that capability within police national database
1: well, usually that PND is used used for mugshots to say is this is this is this person who they say they are, and and the trouble with face, automated facial recognition, of course, it needs a high quality image, generally face on, um, right. and there's no competition here. So what what we've found is that well, what we what the uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology in the USA have said is that uh, super recognizers produce good results and uh, machines can produce good results if it's the right kind of image, but you get the best result if you combine the two. And also the law in this country is such, if you look at the Surveillance Camera Commissioner's card, it says that uh, no um, arrests or stops or adverse, adverse action should be taken against anybody on the basis of uh, artificial intelligence, unless there's been human intervention. So if the um, uh, facial recognition or artificial intelligence makes a recognition, a human has to look at it and say, yes, that's correct. And of course, the best people to say this is correct is is a human super recognizer. So, And you know as well as I do that you could recognize a relative possibly from the back of their head by the way they were walking and where where they were. No machine can do that. And so Mm. super recognizers can identify a image and people will say well you know they you you can't take that to court It's a but if you've got a name then you can arrest a person you can search for the clothing you can do so you can you know a name is the start of the inquiry isn't it yeah yeah. that said many many people have been convicted on super recognized evidence and when i reviewed uh what i found in london is that um for all cases, for every kind of arrest that was made, 64% of people plead guilty. If you have mm. a CCTV image of the person, it goes up to something over 80%. Mm. Once we had multiple idents uh, of a person and the super that it went up to 92%. So that's a massive saving of police and uh, court time and also if the victims you know it's a victim of you know it could be burglary or more a violent or sexual offense that they yeah. have the trauma of going to um give yeah. evidence so it really does make a difference you know so, this, so i
0: suppose it, i suppose the the reality is and just for for the benefit of people who are going to be listening to this who are not experienced police officers um you're never going to be convicting purely on the image alone, are you? So there's always going to be some other corroborating evidence, isn't there? Whether that's forensic evidence, financial transactions, telecoms data or whatever.
1: Generally I'm, I'm, yes, but of course in England you can be convicted on ID evidence alone. And I remember Jamie yeah. Smith had a conviction, for eleven years for an armed robbery, on ID alone. We know there are, of course, the the, the warnings that the jury the d- jury given by the judge, but yeah. in general, as you say, that you know we, we had a case in Croydon, for example, which highlights this where it came up it's a rape of a school a school girl the image came to me i had the because i had a spreadsheet of every 100, the 150 super recognizers i could email them and say you must look at this image as soon as possible mm. within 15 minutes we had a name the man's arrested but of course he denies it's him but then they take his dna and, and of course he's maxed the victim so mm. it sh- it's like everything like fingerprint yeah. you, fingerprint evidence it shows you that the person's been in that house what yeah. they were doing in there at the time of course is another issue so yeah. it's the starting uh points and, and, yeah. and it entitles you to ask difficult questions mm. and we also found that you had a 50 50 chance of finding the clothes so if you arrest somebody the clothing that they've got in that image will be in their house somewhere mm. so all this evidence just corroborates but it's a fantastic tactic, and as I was saying, what you've got though is uh, in the West Midlands, you've got a, an officer called um, PCSO Andy Pope, who's trumpeted in the press. He's made two and a half thousand IDs. Fantastic! I, I run the Association of Super recognizers with Lord Lingfield, we gave him a, an honorary fellowship for his wonderful efforts. But only less than half of his IDs are turned into convictions, because this is because the images, the identity. Are not managed in the same manner as fingerprints and DNA. So fingerprints and DNA are strictly controlled. Their use uh, and their conversion to detection is is, is monitored by the Home Office. It, uh, therefore, it's monitored by the the police officers, senior police officers. So what gets measured gets done. So poor old Andy Polk's making all these IDs, and because West Midlands don't have any systems, one he doesn't see enough images to ID. He can identify ten thousand people without the systems. And secondly, when he IDs them. No No one's gripping the officer to say, why wasn't this person arrested and charged? Yeah,
0: well, I think there's, you know, um, there's all sorts of issues around uh, the criminal justice system at the moment, aren't there, Mike? Um, You look at the 6% uh, detection rate for, you know, total recorded crime. It's a complete bloody disaster by any definition. So I I think the whole system is in complete crisis at the moment, isn't
1: it? And this is just one element of that, isn't it? It's one element of it. What I would say is that for police officers listening is that most things you can... You know, I was at the security and policing conference yesterday at with the Home Office one. I was saying, like, most of the equipment and systems that are on display could make a small difference and and, and make make it better. But the better use of images could make a massive difference. So, like you say, the 6% recorded crime, I think that could easily be doubled straight away if we just manage this better so the office the police officers are gathering cctv which again is then just you know put on a briefing slide and drops off after four days or whatever else and mm-hmm. it's lost to the system if you get your if you leave your fingerprint 25 years ago a crime that they'll find you today so mm-hmm. we need to have the same with images it won't cost very much at all because the images exist the super recognizers already exist and the systems exist with fingerprints and dna just to copy across so it's the police need to think outside the box they don't you know all this artificial intelligence i had the world's first conviction for example for pattern recognition this is where somebody was wearing the same t-shirt so the pattern recognition was actually designed for the advertising industry so if you are um uh advertising on a you know on a football match or imagine putting your brand on the super bowl how much that cost yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the people who buy and sell advertising can track the advert and see how long it was on show for so if you buy or sell it you know what you get it you know the millions of dollars or whatever you spend uh, but and patterns are easy for a computer, faces are hard. So you, you get you can uh, you, you can track a, a logo no matter what angle it's uh, at. Yeah. and so I thought, well, our villains wear distinctive baseball caps and t-shirts, and it was an Everlast brand. I got a guy he had Everlast across his his top, and uh, I got him for two burglaries a year apart, and then I got his um mugshot wearing the same t-shirt, so he'd been nicked in it, mm. and then um I gave the mugshot to the super recognisers who are founding for seven more burglaries. So he got done for nine in the end by yeah. technology and human intervention. But yeah. it was all about this linking images that just wouldn't happen in any other police force. Yeah. It, they were, those images would be lost to the system. Yeah. I mean,
0: the thing is, um, as you know, the whole of the uh, in IT landscape across policing is a, is is like a horrible tangled ball of... Wool and dogs' dinner, isn't it? So trying to get a system that every of the forty-three forces in England wills all use in a consistent way. Um, I mean, I've, I mean, look at, I mean, obviously, I did a lot of stuff in technology, and I still do, you know, as my in my business. But I mean, I have seen some of these systems. I won't name any of them because it would be unfair to those to others. Um, But I've seen one or two of these systems, and they are really, really good. I've got to say, there's one in particular I was really impressed with, where. You would basically ask it, you know, I want to see everyone within this time frame, within this sort of of geo-fenced location, anyone wearing a red hat. And off it goes and it'll find it instantly. It's very, very clever. Um, But um, the problem, of course, is that they're really expensive, aren't they, these systems? I mean,
1: police can't afford them. It's getting getting cheaper and cheaper. I mean, I've been working with the University of Surrey. And, of course, they have have all the things that you say. I mean, when I did the original MET database, I had to say, you know, white man, red hat, blue trousers. This had to be typed in. Mm. Now, of course, the system, you can say, show me all the men in a red hat, and and the computer simply knows what a red hat looks like. You know, it's that good. Mm. Uh, And what I did is all these systems are very good. What I've done with the University of Surrey, Professor Kittler is a very – excellent academic with ai and stuff is to put it all in the same place um and so it worked and, and professor kitler's looking for a police force to trial this for free so it's not you mm-hmm. know this is not expensive at all yeah um and this this kit you know this was from a government grant so the government actually paid for all his research uh and so it's about using it i mean they've met six years ago i said i want pattern recognition on my database it would have cost 60000 pounds it was refused for political reasons that what was happening in the met is that the my images uh, unit was in the forensic branch and on 10% of the bu- budget we were solving more f- crimes and fingerprints and dna so if i work for private industry if i work for coca-cola and i could work, make 10 times as much fizzy pop on half the price than the other factories that they would copy my factory and, and shut the others down in the in the police or public sector if you do start doing things like that they get rid of you uh, because you're threatening jobs and that's exactly what happened to me uh, that they didn't want that you know it's a scandal that was sixty thousand pounds to have the ai on homely criminals have got away with it the people who stop that to my mind that's corruption because they stop villainy being arrested and that is their job and it's that's a sort of outrageous thing that goes on in the police
0: yeah i mean there's an interesting one there isn't there i mean why do you i mean because you're don't take this the wrong way mike but because i've known you a long time you're very a very forthright person aren't you and you definitely do um upset some people, but probably people, to be fair, who who need to be upset. So yeah, good, I, I admit that, I admit the way I am. To what, to what extent do you think some of that intransigence on the part of the organisation is down to just you locking horns? It almost becomes a point of, I don't give a fuck how good it is it's just because it's your idea, and that's why we're not going to do it.
1: There is some of that, but I wouldn't have got as far as I did if I wasn't the way I was. Mm. You know, if I was nice, it would never have happened in the first. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have got as far as I did. So the unit still exists. So, and it's still uh, you know solving crime. So my job was done really. But these people are just. I know those people who deal with GDPR. You know, for example, I was told right, this database can't go on uh, because we haven't got a um, a data protection impact assessment. Okay. So I said to this guy, uh, send me the last data protection impact assessment, and I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Oh, oh, oh no we've never done one before so, so why do you need to do one now so i sat i was being colonel neville on an army camp in merseyside writing this ridiculous document which was going nowhere because some idle scoundrel it suited his purpose not mm. to have the database on because that would have meant some work same mm. with the you know I, I could see i remember saying Mao tongue in china he, he he arrested all the academics and, and made them uh, pick rice so they were doing something useful and i saw people in our technology department who would have been more used picking rice you know they, they were doing <laughs> deliberately obstructive uh and their wickedness in what they did and i, I you know I, if they're listening to this i you are utter scoundrels you stop criminals being arrested to protect your own job and that's it's an it's an outrage and yeah, um yeah it, well it, i've
0: the, I've seen it but i've seen it myself to, um mike in in certain projects um where this data protection information security is used to stop yeah. things stop things from happening isn't it and and, and actually, if you speak to the Information Commissioner's Office, um, well, saying that, sometimes depends who you speak to there. Um, it should be, these. Uh, this legislation and policy around data protection should be used as an enabler um, in, rather than as a blocker. And say, it's, it's I, almost always, always used...
1: Sorry, and can I say no, that I've always found the information commissioner's office very helpful and very very realistic, not stupid at all. In fact, what the deputy information commissioner called me the inconvenient truth of CCTV because the Met tried to stop me uh, speaking. So I've got a lot of time for the information commissioner. And what's the ridiculous about it? I was in some uh, a police force, I won't name it, but I was in a police force and a DI said, oh no, this, this new database, oh, there's all these data protection issues. I said, You're talking utter nonsense because at the moment, or GDPR, at the moment, you don't know how many unidentified images you have, or what you've got. So you are you are breaking the law. Every police force in this country is breaking the law because if you they, are, they should be able to account for every image they've got, and if it's like um, too old, they should be deleting it. But they don't know what they've got. And I said this database will help you conform, you know, comply with the law because you'll know where you've. Um, how many images you've got, or so so, like you say, this GDPR yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. data set is used, yeah. but the yeah, police yeah. are breaking the law. And yeah, yeah.
0: Should... Well, a really good example of what you just said there is that they got into um, a lot of hot water there, didn't they? A couple of years ago, two or three years ago, with the Information Commissioner's Office over a, they were gotten enforcement act, an enforcement notice, didn't they? Because they'd been sending out a um, basically an Excel spreadsheet and they um, completely uncontrolled. Uh, you know people could potentially copy it they could email it to newspapers if they wanted to you know there was no controls around it whatsoever was there and they quite and they quite rightly were, were taken to task by the ICO around that whereas what you're proposing is exactly how it should be done so so you know what you've got it's all in one place it's all locked down and secure the only people who can see it are the people who are authorized to do so but but yeah unfortunately you from from my mind the single biggest blocker in terms of innovation and in policing is, is the information security zealots who will try and yeah. bam, bamboozle you into yeah. basically going away, isn't it? They just don't, they just don't want the problem, do they?
1: Well, that's exactly right. And it, it, I mean, luckily, I helped to write several of the information commission or helped to advise on the code, so I know, I know what I'm talking about when I could deal with these, you know, these scoundrels that I keep going on. But um, the other factor as well. So the, the database would control all the custody images, and this is a, a, a real problem for the police because they don't know which ones to de- delete. Delete because they're all over the place. So it would just help control it. But from a proactive point of view, just I want what what I want you imagining is this: is that if you if you were running around uh, Birmingham or Glasgow or, or London or wherever and you had a really distinctive t-shirt on and you were captured on cctv uh, committing crimes and the, and the police actually managed to download those images because in mind, my, my research shows the police get about cctv for about two percent of crimes in, in, in a country with millions of cameras but let's say they get those images of you in this distinctive t-shirt you could be arrested the following day and have a mugshot taken in the same t-shirt and those crimes would not be linked. If you left mm. your fingerprints or DNA at those scenes, it would be linked. So what we have is we have all these opportunities with images. We've spent billions of pounds on CCTV. Everybody's walking around with a camera on their smartphone. At the point where we know of a fine in London, in particular, there's a 5% burglary uh, detection rate it's utterly outrageous. Uh, ten years ago, I'm, su- I'm surprised it's as as high as yeah. that. To be honest, Mike. Well, well, well 10, 10 years ago, it was ten percent, mm. and in that ten years, forty percent of the population have got ring doorbells and home CCTV. So, as the opportunities to detect crime have gone up the detection rate has gone down. And do you know why that is? I was at the security and policing conference, and every image of a police officer, none of them looked like me or you, that it was a black female or whatever else. And do you know In the police, more effort is made on selecting the right images to stick on posters than catching the criminal who's burgled that old lady's house. And that mm. is a disgrace. And that is the problem. Identity politics... Is the wickedness that is ruining the police, and mm. why the focus is not—they're not interested in Mrs. Brady, the old lady whose house gets turned over. And it, it, I'm ashamed of that. I, you know, mm. I'm ashamed to have been involved in an organisation that can go down such a way. It's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's got all so the just wrong just
0: just to just to kind of pursue that kind of yeah. issue a bit further. Then, so just going back. So leaving what you've said there about. Images and super races is fascinating. I've learned a lot from listening to it and I definitely would like to have another conversation probably offline around that, around yes. some of the opportunities I might be able to put your way. But um, yeah, the issues around policing um, and you've been pretty outspoken, haven't you? You're, you're sort of something of a media pundit now, aren't you? Um, uh, around all of these issues. What, what do you think? Where do you think it's gone Wrong, putting aside the fact that the government took the legs away from policing financially, sort of in two thousand and ten what <laughs> what are what are the other issues that you that you see as having contributed to the the horrible
1: mess that policing is now in? so the, the first thing I think is the lack of ex-military so I, my background I was in the army from 16 to 21 I always wanted to join the police that was my aim uh, and so when I joined when I was at Hendon and on the off parade, there were hundreds of uh, recruits there and I think at least half of them had medals on their chest because they served in Northern Ireland or wherever else Cyprus or wherever the conflicts were at that time uh, when I went back uh, in um, the last time uh, sometime I retired with about Twenty-eight and a half a half years service because of my, um, uh, army Army uh, service so it must have been around 2016 or something I looked at a pass off parade there and I think I saw one set of medals and apparently uh, Hogan Howland Commissioner had said he simply didn't want that type of people and so removing that military background that to, yeah. Sir Robert Peel, if we look at the principles of policing, Robert Peel was obviously a f- very brilliant man because what he said then applies now and he said at the time he didn't want gentlemen he wanted guards, sergeants as his police officer, and you can see the common sense behind that. Mm. And then, so they've got rid of that, they, and they want. So the the uh, if you look to the, the senior officers in the Met, I think only um, uh, Martin Hewitt is an ex-army officer. If you went back thirty years, half the senior officers would have been uh, ex-army. If you looked to people like uh, George Churchill Coleman, Nipper Reed, ex-navy, whatever. And so we've lost that experience, we've lost that discipline, we've lost that smartness that used to make uh, British policing uh, famous, that erectness. And then we've got, uh, you know, equal opportunities out of control. So I've always said that frontline policing is a bit like uh, being in the front row of a rugby scrum if you are uh, you can know all about rugby in fact you could have a degree in rugby you could be the fittest person in the world and the cleverest person in the world but unless you're big and strong enough and you can you can hold on to the guy opposite you will fail so mm-hmm. it's it's really unfair that somebody who's five foot tall really wants to be a police officer but then again me and my you know my granddad used to say to me you can't breed a race horse from a cart horse." so I, I know that i am a front row forward and i can't be a jockey i accept my lot in life mm-hmm. and and uh, when i was on the Poll tax, I had a young, I had a small female officer next to me, and of course the uh, the people who were trying to uh, batter their way through, for all their left wing beliefs and commitments to equal opportunities, no doubt, knew that it was easier to go through her than me. But on the other side of the coin, when I ran a informant unit in Brixton, I rapidly realised that a female officer was a massive asset because women see things that men don't see. Men will tell women things, they won't tell other men because it might expose a weakness and stuff. So I said, I want to guarantee I've always got a female officer on my information. I was told I couldn't have that equal opportunity. So policy trumps operational effectiveness too much in the police. And, and it's mm. it's got out of control. And I remember saying it, it, there was this craze in the police, and you'll remember it in about the early 2000s, where you had to say, or oh, she, after every he. So you couldn't he say, he would say, oh, no, no, you've got to say he or she. This is, a, And I remember saying to a, uh, Hamish Campbell actually was a good, good detective, if we focus more on burglary rather than saying he or she after every sentence, then we might catch some more criminal. And it's an utter obsession. And these people have got promoted from it. And then the next thing you do, you know, we've got this diversity. We were told, well, the more diverse the police are that, uh, the better it'll get. Well, obviously not, because it's not, as it? So from if i was a businessman looking at it, an alien flew in uh, flying on my spaceship and said, Well, show me the police performance 20 years ago and show me it now, i said "Well, Well, what, whatever you've been doing it isn't working. But it, it's it, it's an obsession. And I've never known a, a member of the public complain about the the uh, colour or the sexuality of the police officer who turns up to help them at a burglary, robbery, or whatever else. What mm. they turn what they complain about, of course, is that the officer doesn't turn up or doesn't do anything. Mm. So we're picking the wrong people and for all yeah. the wrong reasons. And, and the senior officers, they're all of the same ilk. They're all ex-students. So you, instead of having a disciplined force of, um, with several ex-senior, you know, ex-military senior officers commanding uh, uh, in, a, in a, a disciplined force, we now have a sort of ragtaggle of students being loosely managed, I suppose, is, is the best verb you could give them, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of students. Hence, you get people skateboarding with Extinction Rebellion and singing with them and stuff. So it's not, we're picking the wrong people. There needs to be roots and branch reform and, and get a grip of, of yeah. this, because it's down the pan.
0: So it's really interesting statistics there has been released in the last week, isn't it? 10% of the Operation Uplift officers have resigned um, within the first two years.
1: So there, I mean, how
0: much money has that cost there? Well, you're recruiting
1: people who don't, Sorry, and I say you That's know right. they're recruiting people who don't know they have to do nights. Yeah. They're recruiting people who don't think they might have to get involved in a fight every so often. It's just what in God's name are we are we, are we doing here? You know, it's yeah. we're supposed to be protecting the public, and what we're doing is it's all inward looking, mm-hmm. identity mm-hmm. politics. I remember being on the phone once. And I was trying to send a load of images of criminals. Of course, the MET system couldn't cope with more than five megabytes or some nonsense like that, you know. And then they put my fist through the screen. And on the other side of the desk in opera, in Empress State Building, you remember, that? it's awful. You could lock that door no one would know and they'd been left in six months. It's full of characters. Like, And opposite me was somebody who looked like Swiss Tony off The Far Show. And he's, yes, I've got uh, six Chinese officers, seven uh, black, uh, three whatever. And I just took uh, uh, six, a uh, uh, gayer. Who cares? yes but they did care and he had all the facilities and i couldn't send images of uh, of people wanting for armed robbery and it's just they've lost their way they've lost their way
0: it's a very strange one isn't it because this is what i say to people that you know i was never a fighter you know i was i was able to hold my own physically, but I was never I was always the sort of person who who would talk my way out of trouble generally, mm. um, try and avoid physical conflict. But but you know, I was six foot two, um, you know, and I could look after myself if I had to. And this is what I say to people, I said, Do you want a police service full of um you know uh you know people are going to be going off on their days off and, and sitting reading um you, you know 18th century poetry no you don't occasionally you're going to have to say to someone see that bloke over there in the corner uh who wants to fight everyone and he's off his head on on steroids and crack um go and sort him out yeah. and you and you're going to want three or four burly probably probably blokes not necessarily because we've all worked with female officers who can handle themselves as well but you do need to have someone who's not going to back down from a fight
1: you know absolutely Absolutely. And I was, the I could fight with anybody. You know, I was the player, and we had the rugby team, and all those people in the rugby team had the most arrests as well. But, there's a place for everybody, but the, the, this idea that uh, if you're five foot tall, you, you're entitled to be a police officer, it's just it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to tell people like, say, it's ridiculous if I wanted to be a jockey. I, I accept my lot, lot in life, but we can't. Everything's got to be about the individual, and it's not about society. We're here to serve society, not ourselves. It's almost like a selfish thing. I think I'm entitled to everything I want. No, you're not. And, and somebody's got to be honest about this. And, and we've got we're letting the public down, and it's sad when you see. Um, um, like I say, five percent detection rates of things like burglary—that's an awful crime. It's easy dismissed. Mm. Uh, I remember, you know, I have had too many wives and so one wife you know there's a burglary in in the shed and you can dismiss these oh it's just a shed burglary but of course to in her mind the criminal had been in the garden where the children play and so that's a real big deal you can't dismiss things and write things off as nonsense and this is what the police do oh it's not important and then of course with the cctv my game is a, of course we, we denounce like shoplifting as, as, as not important so but the shopkeeper he's put cctv in his shop because he doesn't want things being nicked because that's his livelihood So we're not interested in his CCTV when people nick things. But of course, if there's a murder or some incident that we are bothered about, then we do want it. And of course, the shopkeeper then starts quoting data protection, not because he really believes in all that, but he thinks, well, you can't be bothered with, you know, helping me with with the crimes that impact on me. But no, no, my system is is worthy of your use. Uh, And and you can't, so you're not having it. And it's all Mm -hmm. these little things, like you say, community, that goes back to this community policing that mm. it was uh, PC Neville, you know, our going our PC Donnelly going in there who we knew and said, look, help us out here, because we'd helped him by nicking some shoplifters, then he would be more he would be more helpful for serious crime. So all these things mm. are a big circle that go around to to make policing work. It's it's uh it's
0: it's really it's it's really, really interesting, isn't it? I and mean, it's looking at uh, Andy Cook, as the ex-chief of Merseyside, has become the new uh, the new Tom Windsor, hasn't he? And that I think that's a that's got to be, a, it's got to be interpreted as a realization at the highest levels of government that the police are in a right mess and they need someone who is actually a police officer doing that job and not just a police officer. I mean, he was the he was the NPCC lead for the crime portfolio, wasn't he? So he's a really really top class. Uh, operator and knows knows his stuff, and um, and he and he's made it very clear, I believe, uh, this week that that his number one priority is to improve the crime detection rate for the for the police in England and Wales. So, you know, um, I, I I don't think it can get a lot worse, I, and I, I I hope it it can get better. But listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably draw a line. Uh, there because um we could talk all day it's been an absolute it's been an absolute pleasure mate and uh, I I think back on the you used to make me laugh what was that dodgy pub you used to bring me into on the dorset road the um, phoenix the phoenix that's, that's it what, yeah. that's where when,
1: that's when the drug dealers attacked and the Irish, Irish builders <laughs> ran out there and
0: battered them. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, that was that um, that was that was funny. And you introduced, no, I won't name any names, but there was a couple of brothers who had a sort of a French-sounding name, and you'll know who I'm talking about, yeah. uh, who were sort of drug dealers down there, and I remember you introducing them to me. And then I ended up, about a week later, I ended up getting in a right old flipping up in a diner with them both. I wanted to stop and search them both for, for dealing and then ended up it ended up having a roll around on the footpath with them, and then the whole canteen at Clapham turned out <laughs> as as they did in those days, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it turned into like a bit of a pitch battle. But yeah, oh my God, happy memories. But listen, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. I wish you wish you well. Um, I've got a few things going on work-wise at the moment that, that I think there may be, maybe, I can't make any promises, Maybe opportunities around that thing with the chap from Surrey. Is it Surrey, please? Surrey, Surrey University?
1: University of Surrey. Yeah.
0: University of Surrey, yeah, yeah. So I'll be in touch, uh, you know, out of offline, and we can, we can have a chat.
1: It's a great pleasure. Thanks, Ian. I think we've got similar views, but uh, <laughs> thank you for this, your time. All
0: right. No, it's a pleasure. You take care, my friend. Yes, All the sir. best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: He was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him. It really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. Ooh, 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 <laughs>